Welcome to Being the Dot. I'm your host, Dr. Stacy. Each week, I invite a guest to come and talk with us about different experiences of Black life in white spaces. Today's topic, from school days to higher learning to dear white people, the experience of the African-American college student has been widely portrayed in the media. But what's it really like to be the dot in a predominantly white institution? Our guest today will tell you the real deal and not just how they have survived, but how they have all thrived and done well in these environments. Let me give them space to introduce themselves. Why don't we start with you, Sydney? Hello, my name is Sydney. I am a junior at the University of Alabama at Birmingham. I am majoring in genetic and genomic sciences with minors in chemistry, biology, and psychology. Good afternoon. Uh, well, excuse me. Good evening. My name is Michael. I'm a senior majoring in business management with minors in architectural studies and legal studies at the University of Louisiana at Lafayette. And the alumni voice. <laughs> My name is Auli. I am a recent graduate of the Pennsylvania State University at University Park. Um, I was a double major in sociology and African-American studies. So let's start with you telling us. So the, the choice, the co- choosing a college is, is a decision-making process that you're looking at them, they're looking at you, et cetera, et cetera. So can you tell us a little bit of how you got to your institution and your decision-making process? Um, I can go because I answer this question a lot. Um, I chose the university. (laughs) I work in the student housing and residence life, so I get that question a lot from residents. So I chose the University of Alabama at Birmingham mainly because I felt comfortable with the environment and the diversity. Um, We have this hill center, and when you walk in, it's just flags of all the sororities and the fraternities. And what really struck me was there were so many, and not just the Divine Nine. There were so many I didn't know. There were some that I found out were specifically for Latinx, specifically for South Asian. And it just, like, it made me feel welcome. And then additionally, I felt welcomed by the head of the genetic and genomic sciences program at the time. He took the time to speak to me and tell me what my experience would be like with the major. And I just felt that this would be the place where I'd be able to thrive. This is Michael again. For me, choosing my university and going to a predominantly white institute, it was a big trial because ever since I was in high school, I just knew I was going to go to an HBCU. Um, But actually, I fell in love with UL's campus because of the culture, the diversity, inclusion that's provided there. Um, the people. Um, it was something that was completely different from what I experienced in my upbringing. It was a different state, different culture. So it was more of a culture shock for me. And I wanted something completely different to what I was accustomed to going into a new chapter into my life. Um, mm-hmm. Through the leadership. Michael, where, Michael, where are you from? I'm where from you Houston, from? Texas. Yes. I'm from wow. Texas. And then where are you from, Sydney? I am from Algonquin, Illinois. Go ahead. I'm sorry. I interrupted you, hon. Oh, okay. Yeah. So like I said before, I'm from Houston, Texas. Uh, Lafayette, Louisiana is about three and a half, four hours away, um, just east and, you know, just right there in Louisiana. And even though we're neighboring states, the culture is completely different. Um, And that is really what warranted me to want to go to somewhere so different. Um, And since then, I've created a life there. I love it there. Um, I've made lifetime friends. I've made big um, 
introductions to myself, uh, growing within myself and everything. So it's truly a blessing that I was able to choose a university that also offered a pretty big Black population, considering it is a predominantly white institute too. So seeing a lot of individuals that were leaders like I aspired to be in leadership roles once entering really pushed me to want to be like, okay, this is where I want to be. This is what I want to do. This is how I'm going to go about doing it. And let's see how I can impact the university. Yeah, so I, um, I'm i originally from Philadelphia, and so choosing Penn State was not an easy decision because I was also in the, I'm sorry, this is Owly as well, um, but I was also in the same predicament of thinking about where was I going to go um, and how was I going to feel welcome. And so when I chose Penn State, I was looking at the research opportunities, and I know that Penn State is a research one institution, and so the sociology department specifically is a really great department in terms of research, in terms of um, specifically with how they use methodology and things like that. Um, And so I also chose it because of the connections, like everybody knows about Penn State, everywhere I've been, they know about Penn State, they can recognize either a professor there, something about the ice cream or the Nittany Lion. Um, And so being able to have those connections in terms of like post-grad is what I've seen, um, or just even in internships, it's been just an amazing experience being able to connect with people all over the world. No matter matter where I went, everyone knew Penn State. And then I found out about their African-American Studies Department, and I was just sold because I think that um, my specific journey and passion has been deeply rooted in Black liberation. And so to find a department that was not only seeking knowledge, but also teaching knowledge in a way that's practical, that's accessible, was really important to me. And so when I saw the African American Studies Department, I said, this is a place that I need to be. Because once I reconnect with a, a community, um, I need to be grounded in knowledge. So what what what's the main thing that you um, that you love the most about your institution? Like what is like this is the the best thing ever? Uh, what I this is Sydney. What I really love about UAB is I feel like I'm part of a generation that's really making a name for the university. It is a young university, and we have been voted for the second year of the road, the number one young university in America, which I'm very proud to be a part of. Um, And I just like how, because we're so young and we're up and coming, people start to know our name and they look to UAB, especially in the state of Alabama, they look to UAB students for giving internship opportunities, lab opportunities, um, hiring out out of a graduation is really high at the University of Alabama. So at Birmingham, excuse me. (laughs) But I just love that there's opportunity. And also there's a very competitive nature around UAB that isn't, I don't want to say, it's not crippling. That's what I should say. It's very healthy. Um, There's a lot of students that are exceptional and great, and it makes you want to do better. But it also doesn't belittle you because the community does encourage you to do better. This is Aulie. Um, I think personally for Penn State, and I know that this is probably at every institution, especially larger institutions, but I really love um, kind of this push for activism um, that I've seen 
I specifically with black and brown students, there's just been a, a huge group of activists, but specifically when I talk to certain leaders at Penn State, there's always this push for what can you be doing? What can we be changing? Um, and obviously with any change, there's going to be pushback, but there's willingness to talk to activists, to talk to organizers who are on uh, the campus trying to make a change. It's just sometimes it's really a great um, breath of energy, especially being in State College, um, which is very similar to Susquehanna University and being in the middle of nowhere. Um, State College is like a bubble. Some people call it a utopia. We can debate. Um, but I think that it's just really interesting. Also known as Happy Valley. Yeah, which is really like, it's a paradox. But like I said, we can debate. Um, and just seeing the activism there, it you know, with any with any generation, there are highs and lows of when it happens, but I think it's, it's really raw to see it in action, um, specifically at Penn State in Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. what they call Pennsylvania. Sorry. <laughs> hey, everybody. This is Michael again. Um, to piggyback off of what the two uh, these two great ladies have already spoken on, um, coming from a school in the Deep South, it's a lot different um, in the aspect, you know, of finding that balance and really feeling like your voice is being heard. And I can honestly say at my university, we've had a lot of trials and tribulations since I've been there. However, our voices have remained heard as black leaders or black and brown leaders, excuse me, throughout the entire campus. Um, Advocacy and transparency has been something at the forefront, especially in current times now within our generation and then what we're dealing with in America as we speak. Um, And I really appreciate that when it comes from like our administration, because they do have some form of genuine care about our well-being and if we feel safe here and what are there things that can be done? What can we change? What can we make better so that not only us as black and brown students feel safe, but then in turn, all students feel safe. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So I think us as a people having that platform and that that experience and that change, that really that push for change and that cultivation that we speak of so dearly on a day-to-day basis is really what pushes me and 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 and, ex- and it, it helps me explain in a better sense what my experiences are and why I chose to go to this university because I knew ultimately that I wanted to make a change you know right. and this university has given me that opportunity to speak out be an advocate for change for black and brown students and I think that is what makes it such a beautiful thing so as I had shared um, with you earlier that I have been Um, working with Black and Brown students for these 20-some years that I've been um, in higher ed and certainly have seen um, some of the joys that each of you mentioned, but also um, some of the trials and tribulations and some of the difficulty. And it's a large literature base about the experiences of uh, Black students um, at predominantly white institutions. And I mean, I could name a litany of things that can are oftentimes problematic, but I guess I would um, like to have you have it really be in your voice about some of the challenges or difficulties that you've experienced as the dot or the chip in the cookie, the raisin in the milk um, at your at predominantly white institutions. Michael, why don't you start? Awesome. Okay, so. I love that question. It's a, it's one of those questions that I feel a lot of people tiptoe around. 
mm-hmm. um, in the ass and, you know, in spaces that we, you know, that we go to on a day-to-day basis, but being, like you said, the chocolate chip in the milk or the raisin in the milk or the salt and the pepper, you know, we're that one, that dot. Well, yeah. what would be the pepper and the salt though, Michael? Listen, you know, <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, being that, that person, like, you know, looking around, you see, especially when you get into your higher your higher education courses, like, you know, ones that are within your major, you know, after those 60 plus credits, you're usually the only one that looks like you in the class. Um, and that's a big thing, you know, the representation. And I think it's a give and receive aspect of it because it kind of all correlates. If there's not representation, people who look like you, then nine times out of 10, the retention rate isn't going to be as successful as well because there's no one there to motivate you or push you, you know? And I think it has a lot to deal with, even with administration. You know, one thing that we battle on our campus is our representation within uh, teacher and administration is very low. We don't have a lot of teachers that look like us. We don't have a lot of administration. Granted, we do have some. And the ones that are there, they do their damnedest to ensure that their students excel. They get the the resources they need because a lot of times they're they're not easily provided. It's something that we have to push and look for, you know, and I think it's because we're a second thought, you know, a lot of universities, they want this diversity and inclusion and they want to push for it, yet it's not reciprocated once you get there. And then you inquire about it and then it becomes a problem. So those are some of the things and the challenges that I've, I've experienced, especially moving up into leadership roles and what I am now, um, you know, fighting for rights, you know, through SGA, being able to advocate for our voices, trying to get that, you know, that boost in retention when it comes to students. You know, we can admit as many people as we want, but who are going to stay? Who's going to walk across that stage in four to five years that looks like me, you know? And I think, too, that goes with involvement. You know, it, you know, a lot of times when we have organizations that are predominantly for brown and brown, uh, black and brown students, you catch a lot of hell just trying to get it on campus. You know, there's so much justification. Well, why does this need to be on here? Why does this organization need, what is the need for it? Is this going to be beneficial for all students? And, you know, it, it, it's always about, you know, in a humane sense, everybody does matter. But right now, black and brown students matter more in the instance, because we have to fight just to have that safe space. Where's my safe space? You know, where is it given? Is it allotted for me? Once I get here, is it something that I have to continue to fight for? And I think that alone is the biggest challenge that we face, in, at least in the South as of right now, um, being that dot in that one class, you know, at a predominantly white institute. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Michael. Thank you. Um, this is Sydney. I can feed off of that a lot. I think I bring a really unique sort of outlook to that as well, because I am in Alabama, but I'm in Birmingham, which is like the mecca of civil rights movements, mm-hmm. but I'm also in a very red state that does not have that many open values, but the institution is very liberal. So it's a very big, you know, like it's a balancing act. Um, when students come to UAB, you know, they have the understanding that this is a liberal school. Um, this is an open-minded school. And sometimes we do have students that come in that do come from areas that aren't that, that diverse. They're here at UAB because they can afford to be at UAB and get this education. And they haven't experienced, you know, other worldviews and other people's lives, such as black people. Um, recently, I've had um, a coworker. This was my first, like first in-person experience with this, where a coworker, you know, passed a microaggression to another coworker and, a black, it was a black coworker past was microaggressed by a 
he's Asian, but he was raised by white parents. So he's like very like, you know, closed minded. He's from an area where it's very closed minded. He does not have that many diverse friends. And so when he was called out about that, he came back to me and um, someone had asked him, would you say that to a white person? And the guy said, yeah, I would say that to a white person. And I had to explain to him, well, look, you can't say that certain phrase to a black person because it's a microaggression for just to for reference what was the phrase to be just for reference um one of the black student was wearing all red and he asked him if he was a blood um so it was a in Alabama, because <laughs> we know the proliferation of bloods in Alabama is huge. I had to, I had to explain to him because this was my friend, and I had just found out, you know, his upbringing. I didn't know his background before this. He was just my friend, so I had to explain to him. Well, look, you can't say that to another black person because we face so much microaggression in daily life. If we wear a color, we're automatically assumed to be part of a gang. That's not fair. And we're already facing so much brutality against the police. That's just not right. You can't say that to people. And, you know, he he had to sit back and say, oh, I didn't think about it that way. So it's sort of instances like that when you're in the student body and a black or brown person raises a question or raises, you know, um, you know, they say a concern. And a lot of the, a majority of the population will be, well, look, you're being too sensitive. And the person that says you're being too sensitive will get all the support. That's sort of what's happening on campus. And I really feel like the administration can really only focus, they have the capacity of only focusing on one struggle at a time. And the struggle that they're focusing now on is ableism. So um, the black and brown kids are not getting the representation that we're fighting for in our organizations because they're focusing on ableism and mental health more so than they are the actual injustices that are happening down the street, the riots that are happening down the street, the KKK members that are coming and marching down the street, you know? So that's something I've had to face, especially in Birmingham. It was, it was very scary when the KKK came down here and said they would shoot any black or brown person that was walking down the street and I was here and I was like, okay, let me just stay in my dorm. And they threatened to bomb a whole hospital that was up the street from my dorm. Wow. So these are in real world instances that we have to face being in like an epicenter of civil rights. Mm. Yeah, epicenter of civil rights. Wow. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. Wow. This is hourly. I just had to say, wow. Cause I, I think about all the time when I was just going back really briefly when I was thinking about choosing a school, I was, you know, especially with HBCUs or just schools in general, I was thinking about what a, a northern city girl would do if I was to go down south and go to school. And I think about that so much because I was like, the culture is different, but and the problems look different, they appear different. Um because there's a lot of covert racism happening in the North, happening very urban areas. Um, and to go down South, especially in a lot of the HBCU, sometimes we're in rural areas. And so I was thinking about what that would look like for me. And so just to hear you say that was really wow. 
And I'm scary as you think. It's not as scary as you think. Oh, yeah. yeah. But 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 I, but yeah, what you. I wonder is, go ahead, Michael. I'll oh, stop okay. talking. Because you might be going where uh, where I'm where I'm about to go, Doctor Stacy. Um, for us from being from the South, I think we're so used to it. <laughs> it's something that is you know growing up. It's just an instance, like you know, in Houston, for instance. We have smaller cities around us that are like maybe 15, 20 minutes away that we as black and brown people know we are not welcome. <laughs> you just don't go there. You don't go there after a certain time. You don't go there in a group of people. You don't go by yourself. You just don't go there. You know, there's different ways. Just like you literally take a detour to get around. And, you know, that's how we were raised and brought up is to be aware of, you know, just because I'm a few shades darker than you. I'm still a human being. I'm still capable of doing the same things you can do. But because I am darker than you, I pose a threat or I should be inferior to you, you know, and it's sickening that we have to deal with that and live a day to day basis. And hopefully in time with everything that's going on, it could be something different, you know, especially in our generation of a lot more uh, people within our generation are more liberal, more understanding. You know, they've had time to really sit back and see, you know, the things that are going on in the world are really wrong. They're inhumane. What is there to do? What can we do when it comes to, you know, allies and things of that nature? So that's all I wanted to kind of say in regard to that. You know, I think it's because we've normalized it, unfortunately, because of that's just how we grew up. Yeah. And I do think in those same instances, kind of this understanding of covert racism in the way that it's been normalized here in Pennsylvania, places in the North, um, and just it, it becomes an erasure of like, what is truth? And right. what is and what is the honest reality for um, for many black specifically black people? And so I, what you said is really interesting because I I've done um, research on like uh, racial violence specifically in um, the South. And so I, part of my research was looking at sundown areas and sundown counties because yeah. that's where a lot of these lynchings were occurring. And so understanding this kind of dynamic of like the North and the South looks very, appears very different or very stark, but it's really not. Um, But there are a litany of trials and tribulations that I think kind of fall across every university because everything um, y'all spoke of is things that happens at Penn State. Um, Something that I kind of popped up at my mind was this idea that like something happens something racist happens, something sexist happens, something homophobic happens, and you report it. There's a report bias website that you can report at Penn State, and that's it. That's it. Like, you report something, and I'll speak specifically about uh, my experiences with reporting. Um, On my first weekend at Penn State, um, I was called the N-word with the heart ER, from somebody's driving down the street and I reported it nothing happened I didn't get a call there was no no one reaching out none of that and so in many ways there's this kind of like process of normalizing over racism but without any type of repercussions none of that the second time was when I was on a bus um, this is also in 2016 during the the 2016 election so we already have this understanding of like what's happening politically. Um, there were a bunch of Trump supporters with the, you know, the MAGA hats on, on a bus. And um, I was the only black person on the bus. 
And I remember these drunk white kids, like, just talking madness. And it was really, really packed because it's a football um, football weekend. And, you know, you go to a big white institution, like, football is everything. And so I remember the bus driver telling everybody to move to the back of the bus. And the white guy yelled, I'm not moving to the back of the bus. She's going to move to the back of the bus. Um, and then reference Rosa Parks. And so in my head, I'm like, oh, my gosh. You know, I'm, I'm not, oh, my gosh, as in I'm so surprised that this will happen. But, oh, my gosh, is in the state of fear. Because I'm surrounded by white people. Everyone's laughing. Trump, white people. Trump. Trump. Drunk Trump. and Trump. Yeah, oh, I didn't think <laughs> Drunk and Trump. That's a dynamic. That's like. In a, in, a small, in a small area. And the parents are laughing too. So there's not even this idea of escape happening with parents or an adult. Someone that's responsible. And I was with my friend who, who is black. But she's white passing. So in this instance. It's like everybody is staring at me. And I was like scared. I'm like, what is going to happen? And so at the first moment I was able to get off the bus, I got off the bus and they would not let me off. Like they would not give me space to move. There was this kind of like this idea that we're going to taunt her until we aren't able to. So when I got off the bus, I got off the bus with a, a few other white girls that were getting off and they were like, oh my God, this was so horrible. And this is not to mock them, but this was so horrible. I can't believe they did that. And so I said to them, I said, so were you going to speak up? Or were you going to say anything? And they were just like, oh, like we were just so scared too. And I was like, in this moment of fear, who is actually supposed to be fearful of their lives, not of just the moment of their lives? And I say that to say, because then I reported it and nothing happened. And so there's this idea of like, being traumatized and like there not being any type of healing happening. No one's reaching out. No one's asking, how are you? There's just that I have to deal with that trauma. And I know that specifically with racial trauma, like it is so ingrained in who we are that there's just this normalization that I'm supposed to deal with it. Even I've heard it from staff saying like, oh, well, you know, you reported and then that's what it was. And so I, I say that say because it's, like, it's really saddening that there are so many instances of microaggressions, of overt racism. Um, one of my friends was racially profiled and pat down um, by a white officer because he fit a description, and the description was just Black man. And so there are these instances that are happening, and we're reporting them, and nothing is happening. So student Black students are being traumatized by their experiences at this institution that they're paying thousands of dollars to go to, and there's no, there's no solution. And so when students reach out to administration, like, well, what are you going to do? We're paying the same amount of money, and we're being traumatized. We're being um, marginalized in many ways that you're not even addressing, and there's just silence. It's just silence. And in many times, the onus of making that change always falls on Black students. It falls on Black people, period. But there's this narrative that Black people, it's the, the responsibility to make this institution, this, this society not racist and anti-racist, the responsibility has to fall on Black people. When white supremacy was not created by Black people, we don't benefit from it. And so I think that something that I've seen specifically at Penn State is just 
this onus of black people, black students saying, you have to do something about it. Like I had one administrative, um, it was a, I think it was an administrative leader say, well, um, the black students are so segregated. And I said, well, those are not intentional. Those are safe spaces. So I just want to stop just for a minute because your list, my listeners can't see what I can see. But as Alouette Lee said that, the whole panel rolled their eyes. Um, <laughs> go ahead. Yeah. So I was just like, what do you mean? Those those are actual safe spaces. Are you saying that if we want to make this truly, and I, I'm putting up quotation marks, a diverse and inclusive space, that we need to diversify those spaces. And I said, what about those white spaces that are not safe for Black students? What about those white spaces in classrooms, in organizational meetings, in the cafeteria, in, in dorms? What about those spaces that are not safe for Black students? No student comes to, to a school and say, I want to separate myself. No, you go to college to expand your, your not only your mental, but also your understanding of who's around you. And mm-hmm. so if I'm coming into a space that's not safe for me, I'm going to go to who I know, regardless if I grew up around them. Because there are a lot of Black students that grew up in predominantly white high schools and grew right. up in predominantly white areas that also seek Black spaces because their 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 whole being is not being recognized. So I'm going to stop you just for a second. And I think that you are dead on is that one of the, that there is power in affinity groups. And there's a great book out there for my listeners called Why Do All the Black Kids Sit Together in the Cafeteria? It's actually a classic. Um, and Beverly Tatum. And she talks about that we oftentimes cluster in around different parts of our identity. And so the football players may cluster and the band may cluster and the ROTC folks, but also people will cluster around uh, race and ethnicity. And part of what makes it really important in when, when college students are the dot is that those are spaces of safety. And that sense of belonging is actually a predictor of engagement, success, and graduation. And so those those spaces are so very, very important. I wonder if Michael, you and Sydney want to chime in a little bit about what do you believe has been the impact on you to, to um, Alali talked about uh, the trauma of some of it, a race-based stress. What What's your sense about what the impact has been on you or on your learning or on your experience, that kind of thing. Um, it's my it's Michael again. Uh, for me, the trauma and my and the impact it's had on me has been very taxing for my mental. Um, but it's one of those things that I've learned how to take it from make it from a, a negative into a positive. And it sounds crazy, but what I do is I take that negative connotation that that constant sense of not feeling safe, and I use that to fuel my goals to ensure that this doesn't happen anymore or if I can be an aide to make sure that it doesn't happen to other students that look like me so you know one for one like everybody else we're tired you know we shouldn't have to do this and kind of like how um uh Aloe had said she um mentioned how you know it always falls on us as black people or black and brown people to have to fix it when it wasn't us that broke it to begin with you know, why is it that I have to bring it to your attention when it should be already known abundantly that it's not us that's doing it, you know? So 
in that instance, you know, we get tired. We always are the ones to have to initiate something. We're the ones who have to report it or we have to do the research or we have to go about and talk to this person and that person to ensure and find a better solution. Why haven't we been met halfway, you know? And I think that alone is the part that's so stressed. It's so taxing on us, you know? Um, And with all of that, I think that's where our impact comes when it comes to making that change. Uh, you know, being able to rely on people that look like you within the safe spaces that we had to create um, alone is really where you find your solace and solitude, um, mm-hmm. your sense of peace and understanding. And it shouldn't have to be that way, but that is the reality in which we live in right now. Um, and I honestly, I just wanted to be able to not be that way eventually, you know, and it's it's been going on for years, years and years due to all the things that have transpired in American history and world history. So it's like, where do we go from here? Do we continue? Well, we will continue to do what we're doing to ensure that it doesn't happen anymore. But when will we start seeing a definitive change? Is it just going to be in a local situation or is it going to be regional? Is it going to be national, global? Like, what is it going to take? for everyone to understand that what is going on is wrong, why this trauma should not be a trauma, it should not be a thing in general. You know, how many lives does it have to take that people are losing for everyone to understand that this has to stop? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So my take on uh, the trauma per se is I haven't directly experienced like drama directly towards me. Now I can say I've experienced a lot of passive trauma as in we found professors or instructors that were part of a white supremacist group in my biology department. That's traumatic. Going through the controversy of um, the Black Lives Matter movement, that was traumatic. It caused a lot of issues on campus, a lot of debates, um, a lot of healthy debates, I may add, but there are some really traumatic debates where you had to walk away and be like, I cannot associate with this person anymore. I have mm-hmm. to cut them out. But going further with UAB, what I'm seeing, and I come from a predominantly white neighborhood. So when I first came on campus, um, I was used to this environment, not being the majority, you know, trying to find my space. And I experienced a lot of backlash with my career goal and wanting to start a student organization for genetic counseling and, you know, facing a lot of people just automatically saying, you can't do it, you know, like not knowing, just knowing me on the surface level, you know, and them going to the next student who wanted to start the organization and being, yeah, go ahead, start it. So unfortunately I had to start my organization in, uh, in conjunction with two other people but at the same time, I did end up making a name for myself and starting an area for myself. And in that way, after my freshman year, going through that and starting a space for myself, because genetic counseling, which is my passion, is a predominantly white female occupation. So going into it as a black female, there is not that many, rep- there's not representation for me. So I thought of that as, okay, I'm starting to become the representation And then going further, getting more involved on campus, I really, when I got my position as a resident assistant, I really sat and I thought, and I looked at a lot of the residents that were coming in. I was in a freshman dorm my first year, last year. And I said, I need to be a safe space for the other students coming in from areas that are not from Birmingham. 
Um, and I say not from Birmingham because students who are from Birmingham, black students that come from Birmingham already have a community when they come in here. A lot of the students go to UAB, so they already know a lot of people. But when you're from out of state or you're from like down south all the way down in Alabama, you are lost. You know, you don't know what to do. You don't know the vibe of the campus. So I felt it was my job to take what I learned from my first year and be like, okay, I need you to eliminate all the fear you have of voicing yourself, of being yourself, of changing mm -hmm. yourself to appease the masses and being part of the organization that you want to be in. You don't have to do that at UAB. Don't be like me and thinking you have to change yourself your freshman year to be on USGA or to start your own organization or to make friends. That's just not how it works on this campus. So I guess my trauma really encouraged me to start changing the narrative of students coming, black students coming into here. And I, my impact may have been like small, but it's exponential growth. Once you teach somebody something, they teach five others. So I, I went off of that. So one of the things that I'm aware of is that each of you seem to one of the ways that you have coped is to find your voice and to be able to then articulate yourselves. And I'm wondering if you might talk a little bit about that process and how that has helped you to thrive. So Cindy, you just kind of laid it out a little bit. Um, so you don't have to go again, but you can. But um, I just wanted to add, I mean, part of my process was uh, my relationship with God. <laughs> it really mm -hmm, was. Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. I really sought out God a lot. I My relationship with him grew and I had to do a lot of meditation to really understand that I'm doing the path that he has set out for me. So I shouldn't be scared to continue on to that path. So that's all I want to add. Wonderful. Thank you. In an agreement with Sydney, too, I think being spiritual and, and religious in any form or fashion during times like this and just in general, making it methodical to speak to God and talk to God about what's going on, you know, helping, you know, figuring out what it is, you know, you have to meet God halfway, you know, through your prayers and through your actions that follow. And I think that alone is really what pushed me to keep going as well, too. Um, you know, being spiritual and just constantly having that conversation with God, speaking to him and also to like my family and friends, my peers mm -hmm. that I know that I can trust, you know, them being there is a, mm -hmm. is a motivational boost. And, you know, we help each other, you know, when our lowest times you, um, and understanding that as well. And, you know, meditation and yoga is so key. I've learned that over time. I took a yoga class and I loved it ever since, you know, I find I make time during the day to make sure that I can meditate, you know, even if you're just sitting in your bed and you just sit there and you take time to breathe and just kind of let go and just take the troubles and the worries out of the day. Cause you know, we have our rough days and we have our good days. And even when the good days are here, you still got to sit down, you got to pray, be thankful and you need to meditate about it, you know? Um, <laughs> but that resignation is really what gets me going and pushes me to continue to excel and, you know, coming back to the question at hand was really just finding my voice. I found my voice through my involvement. And I think when going to a predominantly white institute and trying to figure out how you can create the best college experience as a black and brown student here at a, a university where there's a lot of people that don't look like you is to get to know the people that do look like you. And the best way to do that is getting involved. Um, for me, I got involved into the Black Student Union, which I am the president now of. 
Um, I got involved into uh, the African Student Association, you know, getting back to the roots, figuring out who I am, ancestrally speaking, you know, finding out the different cultures on the multicultural spectrum, um, you know, interacting with other black and brown students uh, through my fraternity, Alpha Five Fraternity Incorporated. I've found my voice there as well, you know, making, pushing us to really go through what we need to get through and be the change. And I think that sense of involvement is really the key factor in people finding their voice and being able to speak with eloquence and know how to be a testament for other Black students. And I think, you know, for any time, like when we've done things with like Get On Board Day, student orientation, and they ask us to come speak, um, trying to get people involved or when we go to the dorms after they move in and we ask them, it's like, Hey, so are you interested? You know, what do you, what are you wanting to do? What are you looking forward to, you know, in college? And it's like, well, I want to get involved or, you know, meet more people because they've moved in and they've, they've seen maybe two or three black or brown students. Everybody. Mm-hmm. Like, That's like, where they at? Where they at? You know? And so you gotta, you have to, we have to put ourselves out there. You know, we need that so much planning just in the summer for the next semester, just to ensure that Mm -hmm. we don't let these incoming freshmen down, these underclassmen, even the upperclassmen that might not be involved is what we are. Because at the end of the day, we're not only advocating and speaking for ourselves, but we're speaking on behalf of people who don't have that voice yet. And I think finding it, like myself, was really through involvement in organizations. Mm -hmm. Alali? Yes, um, this is Alali again. I wholeheartedly agree with both of y'all. it is so important in the journey in higher education, just in life period, to be your whole authentic self mm-hmm. and to walk in your truth. And I think that being faithful to whatever spirituality you are a part of is so important when mm-hmm. you're going through that journey. And so I completely agree with just staying close to prayer, staying close to my family, being rooted in Black women here at at Penn State was so important to me um, to find new people. Uh, For me specifically, as I joined the African-American Studies Department, that became my home away from home. That became my family because the department is ran by really strong Black women who are really doing the damn thing, okay? Like bringing bringing the department up from where it was to being like nationally known so much so that when I go to in- internships, people are asking me about the African American Studies Department. They're getting ha- quarter million dollar grants. They're getting it's just it's just been so amazing. And I think that I found my voice not only through involvement but also being rooted in knowledge and understanding that I've already had a voice. That our ancestors mm. have already paved the way for us to have a voice, yeah. and that we only have to tap into that light of what we know in order to be able to use it. So what would each of you say to your freshman year self and what you know now, briefly, um, <laughs> that time is marching on, but what would you say? I think what I would tell my freshman self would be get ready because mm-hmm. <laughs> it's it's going gonna, it's gonna to be a rough one. Um, but know that every step I take and every journey I might venture onto, it has a meaning there's some type of definitive purpose, whether it be me taking an L, because sometimes you just have to know that, you know, taking that loss, you're going to find a gain in the end in some form Mm. or fashion. Um, So remaining transparent, you know, finding a good group of friends. I was blessed to have the same group of friends since I've been in school to this day. 
And it, nice. it's a beautiful thing, you know, like knowing that, you know, we have our ups and downs. People have gotten into arguments, you know, you name it. Life changes happen. People got married, children, whatever the case may be. But at the end of the day, we got our degrees. We're working towards getting our degrees. We're at the the, the peak of graduating and things of that nature. Businesses are starting, you know, things are starting to flourish and blossom. But I think it would just be ultimately keep, you know, don't give up. And there's been many a times where I've wanted to transfer from school and go to a different school because I felt like mm. it wasn't fit for me because I couldn't picture myself doing something and not have that guidance because it wasn't a lot of people that looked like me within my program um, or, you know, feeling like I didn't matter you know, at, at low, low points, you know, during a collegiate career. And it was really just, you know, kind of going back, like how we talked about, you know, the, you know, spirituality, having a good support system, knowing how to reach out, finding, you know, solace and solitude, reaching out and finding administrators that genuinely care, you know, mm-hmm. like currently, you know, at UL, a University of Louisiana Lafayette, we are also having these, I guess you would say these organic conversations, even if they're on Zoom, where, you know, Black faculty and staff, student leaders, and then just students in general, we're able to come together and express our feelings and our emotions and the anger and the frustration that we feel as a people right now because of what is going on. And it kind of takes it back because, you know, I, I know from like when, we were, when I was a young kid, younger guy, um, when you saw a teacher out, like in the store, you're just like, oh my God, like they have a life outside of the school. And it's like, yeah, <laughs> they do. Like we're going to a restaurant and you see them, they're sitting at the bar with their wife or their husband, or they're with their kids in the restaurant, you know, they're eating. And it just kind of, it brings you back to a sense of, a sense of sensibility. Like, okay, these are just not, they don't live in the school, Mike, you know, like, right, right. <laughs> right you know, so they're real people, they're real people. And it, mm-hmm. it, it, it's a humbling experience and it sounds insane and, or somewhat unrealistic, but when you have that interaction with administration or faculty and staff and they're broken down and they're tired and they feel the same things you feel and they're just on the other side of the university on a different tier level, it brings you, it kind of comes full circle. And then you come to realization, it's like, we need to be all in this together. And mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and I wouldn't have gotten there in that position to be able to have, you know, being on a podcast like this, um, you know, these great opportunities where I'm able to speak and talk to administration or talk to incoming freshmen, upperclassmen, underclassmen, my mentees, whatever the case may be, and express like my experiences in college and what I would always say, because this is a question that I get asked so much and it never changes. I would just say, continue to do what I was inspired to do. Because at the end of the day, regardless if I could go back in time, you know, destiny remains the same. Like, this is what I was supposed to do. I might've taken a different route, but at the end of the day, the goal is to just not give up. Mm-hmm. Alalee? There are so many things I'll say, but I- the, Just one. Yeah, that's what I said. <laughs> I, I'm, I, I think the biggest thing is to remember that you can be your own light in that dark tunnel. Um, mm. Because as Michael said, there have been very many lows, especially my freshman year not feeling wanted, not feeling valued, not being seen. There's a sense of erasure and invisibility um, when you're at such a huge and white institution feeling invisible. And so just mm-hmm. just be that light for yourself, for others, and to continue to um, do what you need to do and to speak out. And no matter if you feel like it, you know, changes things. So I definitely say that. That's nice. What about you, Sydney? 
I would definitely tell myself, um, keep, trust the process, keep trusting the process Mm. and don't overwork yourself. Um, I found life is just full of opportunities, especially in college. And my freshman year, I just felt at that time because I was not experienced that I needed to get everything on my resume and my CV to get anywhere my next year, my next year, not in in senior year, not in that my next year to to get onto the board of so and so to get on to this position. So I, I found you don't need to do that. You just need to trust in the process, trust in the universe and God, because it really works out for you if you just trust the process. I have not had to try that hard. I mean, I've had to try. I've had to study, of course, but I haven't had to purposely put myself out and overextend myself to get to the point I'm at right now because I found that me being myself and bettering myself knowledge-wise and worldly-wise and humility-wise has led to me getting these opportunities, meeting these people, being able to connect to people. So I've I've just found you don't have to be in every organization to to thrive. You don't have to know every one of your professors to get into the next internship. You don't have to do that. You can solely go off of just knowing that you are the best you you can be. That's beautiful. So my last question is one that I ask everybody that I've interviewed. And it is this. If you could tell white people one thing that they can do, knowing that it's really their responsibility, but if you could tell them one thing that they could do to make predominantly white institutions more inclusive, more equitable, and more anti-racist, what would you say? I would definitely say, this is Sydney, I would definitely say take a course on racial humility. So... Mm. Racial humility is a concept I recently learned in my positions when we're training on how to deal with different residents in our housing complex. Um, It's basically knowing that you have your core beliefs and morals, but you cannot extend that and you cannot pressure that onto somebody else. You have to have the humility to learn about other people's views and then incorporate that in a way to make a safe space for others. Nice. Who wants to go next? I'll go. All right. Um, For me, it's pretty simple. See me for who I am, not the color of my skin. Mm. And, you know, that's something that people have said and preached for so long now. And to me, it could, it's, it's that plain and simple. See me for who I am and not for the color of my skin. Imagine a world where we could not see what we looked like when it came to color. Mm. We were all, it was just one shade we wouldn't have these problems or there would be another way or instance for us to define somebody or, you know, hate for on someone in some other form or fashion. But in reality, it's just see me for who I am. In a lot of instances, your prime example, you know, you uh, like when I talked about like emails and different etiquette and things of that nature, you know, if you're messaging someone, how are they to know who you are? If you don't have a picture of, they don't know that they're speaking to a black man the way I write eloquently, they're not thinking that it's, you know, a st- I'm, I'm the common statistic in that aspect, you know? And I think if they were to understand that we are the same, we are one of the same, we are human beings. We have rights as human beings that should not be different based on what color I am. 
And I think if that instance was really just taken taken apart, honestly, then we wouldn't face the issues that we face now in this light. Um, Mm -hmm. It's something that's very utopian and it's a far cry out, but that's honestly all I could really say in this reality is really just see me for who I am and not my Mm -hmm. color of my skin. It's good. This is Awali. I would say that there is no more room for reform. Mm. Um, And there's no more room for tiptoeing. That is only about dismantling tables. Um, I know we talk a lot about breaking legs of tables or shaking tables or making room, but that table represents an institution that has historically oppressed black and brown people, um, people that are not able-bodied, people that do not represent the gender that you want them to be. And so I think that it is so important that we think in a framework that truly thinks about who do we need to center, who has historically been oppressed, and how do we dismantle systems and institutions that do not represent these people, that do not give opportunities to these people. Because I think that reform is only temporary. It only it only creates very temporary solutions. It does not, it's not even equitable for in many ways to everybody because it, and oftentimes we see in the system that we're in white supremacy that one one solution for something usually leaves someone out. And there's usually some sort of erasure. And we don't we don't have time for that. When we're talking about being truly intersectional, it means that we're including those who have historically been oppressed. And so I would say that there's no time for reform, only abolition. Well, I'm inspired that I am so lucky that I get to work with college students um, every day and have for the last 25 years. But I am even more blessed that I've been able to spend this hour with these particular scholars, that um, they are smart and thoughtful and strategic. And I feel a little bit better about the future tonight. (laughs) (laughs) I want to thank our guest daughters, Sydney Alaloui and Michael for being with us this week and sharing their stories of being able to not just survive, but thrive as college students in predominantly white institutions. Join us next week. Thanks for listening. This episode was edited by Nikki Anderson. Special thanks to our interns, Amanda Gillette and other contributors. Our music is provided by Jaffa. Being the Dot is sponsored by David's Delicious delights.com david's delicious delights.com custom made personalized cakes pies cookies and pastries made with a dash of southern flair visit david's delicious delights.com and use the coupon code being the dot for 20 percent off orders of 34.99 or more